I don't know about you, but I needed that. That was so awesome just to be able to worship God. Yeah, express it. It's so good when we get to come together as a family on Sunday for us to worship together. I see kind of Sunday morning as that refueling time. It's uh, where we get charged up, we get encouraged because we are to be the church 24-7. Uh, so church isn't what happens here on Sunday. This is a part of it, but we are to be charged up and fulfill the commission that God has given us to reach our core. You'll hear the word core a lot, and that's circle of responsibility. Each and every one of us have a circle of responsibility of people we pray for, people we come alongside of, people that we want to see come to faith in Christ. And so that's part of what we are commissioned to do as believers. Now today we're going to be talking about the tongue. We're going to be talking about our words, and so you should probably say, uh-oh, uh, you know, brace myself, I'm going to hear what God has to say to me, and it's not a message of condemnation, it's a message of evaluation, really, for us to evaluate how we're using our words in light of leadership. We've been going through a series on core principles of just leadership. We're trying to lay the foundation for the whole year of what this leadership should look like. We've talked about humility. Uh, last la uh, Two weeks ago, I so appreciate the fact that Mark Leggett brought us the word from uh, Matthew chapter 20. This was a chemo week for me, so I was in the midst of... Uh, you know, all the hospital stuff going on around, I got a chance to just have a, this little oasis of solitude in just listening to the message, and I was ministered to, and I was reminded that the pathway of greatness that God gives us is through humility. It's, Jesus says, uh, it's not as the world says, it is much different than what the world says. It is a different dynamic, it's a different paradigm. The pathway to greatness is through being a slave. It's through humbling yourself and serving other people. And so uh, I don't know if Mark's here, but uh, I hope he listens to this. And I hope he knows that I appreciated it so much. And then the, the last Sunday, we had the counselor that Lee and I have been seeing. I have no shame in saying that we have been seeing a counselor just to make sure that we are emotionally and, and physically healthy in our thinking. And it's been so, so beneficial for us to be able to do that. And Dr. Litchie came and shared the question of, how are we being a blessing in our Babylon? And I slotted him in the area of trust. He didn't even mention the word trust, but trust was all over the place because basically, if we are showing the love of Jesus Christ right where we are planted in our Babylon, in our circumstances, if we show the sweet love of Christ, then there is nothing but respect and trust and credibility that is given to an individual because people are watching you in the midst of your trials. They watch you if you curse God. They watch you in the midst of, of, of physical afflictions. They watch you in a difficult job situation. They watch you in a tumultuous marriage situation. Do you show the character of Christ? What is your Babylon and are you a blessing in that? 
And I so appreciated Dr. Litchie sharing his own cancer story and how God has used cancer as a platform for him to be a blessing in his Babylon. And now today we're going to talk about communication. Our words. Why is that a part of a leadership principle? Humility, uh, uh, trust and respect, and communication and words. Why is that a part of a, the key to our leadership? Because this thing is going to determine how people view you. This thing is going to determine the credibility that you have. It will show the leader that you are following, that I am following. If I am following Christ, this thing will become more like Christ. And that's where we have a difficult time. Because we get, we get angry, we have difficult situations, and our emotions bubble up, and we start saying things that we don't mean, and it's trouble. And so we're going to ask that God help gain control of this so that we can have the greatest credibility in the world that we live in. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, would you take your word and use it in a beautiful way? I pray, Father, that you would take your word and allow it to flow through us. Help us to think about what your word has to say to us. I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand the dynamics of what we are dealing with in terms of the words that you give us in, in the terms of the, the, the witness that we have through our words. I pray that you would help us to just understand what your word has to say to us this morning and give, that, give clarity to that. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll open your Bibles to James chapter 3, it's a familiar passage. James 3, we're going to look at verses 1 to 12. James is going to use the tongue more in an illustrative way. He kind of gives it, uh, he personifies the tongue and he gives it life because it should have life because it, it gives an accurate picture of, of what we deal with on a daily basis. But what I love uh, in terms of what James is going to show us is he's going to give us a clear picture of two sides of the tongue. There is one side of the tongue where it can be used in an incredible way, and he's going to talk about leadership in a minute, using the tongue to teach the Word of God. Just what we're doing right now that we are seeing right before you. And if the individual, if the leader is a spirit-filled individual, then that could be used in a beautiful way, and if there's consistency in that person's life, then it's a beautiful thing. But on the flip side, you can see the absolute worst of the tongue when it is tapped into our flesh, our depravity. All we need to do is look around us and we see the depraved nature and how it manifests itself in arguments and debates and, and demeaning comments to other people. And so we see the best and the worst that can come from the tongue and we know that that is possible with us. Now, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you have given your life to Christ, please understand you have an advantage here. You don't have to sin. You don't have to submit to the fleshly nature. It's always going to be there. It's always going to be a temptation. But we can say no to sin, according to Romans chapter 6. That's a beautiful thing. We can have victory over the fleshly nature and the influence of that with it in regards to our tongue. 
Now, if you do not know Christ, I have a sad message for you. If you haven't come into that relationship, there is absolutely no control that you have in terms of God coming in and, and controlling you. Not until you submit to him. Once you submit to him and you accept what Christ has done, then there's something beautiful that he can do in your life. And I want to give you that challenge today as we look. James will give us that challenge as we look at his word. When I think about us as believers, though, I do think that there is a tension that we have in our life. There's this tension to do what's right and to say what's right. And there's this pull to say what's really on your mind. Have you ever been in that situation where I would really like to tell you what I'm thinking right now? You've been there, haven't you? You want to say it. You want to be the Simon Cowell of, 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 the, uh, of American Idol, where he just says what he thinks, and you're like, how does he get away with that? We can't do that in life. But this tension exists. The scriptures say that tensions exist. Galatians chapter 5 says, For the flesh sets the desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, so that you do not do what you ought to do. And so that tension exists there. Keep that in mind as we go into the passage. So James chapter 3, we're going to look at the uh, verse, verses 1 to 4. And James is going to start off by talking about teachers. And he wants to start off with the leadership in the church and how there has to be this high standard in terms of how we speak and live out the word of God. Now just understand, at this time the church is new. James was one of the first New Testament books that were written. There were some that were still coming out of a pharisaical mindset that were trying to shove their way up to the front of the line and to be able to be teachers because there was notoriety that, was, that came with that. Now James is trying to elevate the bar of where the teachers should be and how we should evaluate those teachers. And so this is what he says. Right out of the gate... Not many of you should become teachers, period. Not many of you should become teachers. My brother, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a stricter judgment, a greater strictness. And we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. If we put the bit into the mouth of the horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So what James does is he starts off by giving this admonition to the teachers, and then he's going to give an illustration of a ship and a horse. Now, in this admonition, he starts off by saying, you know you, that you, if you're a teacher, if you're teaching the word of God, there is going to be a stricter judgment for you. Why does he do that? I don't believe James was trying to discourage teachers. I think he was trying to bring a soberness to the office of those that would bring the responsibility of preaching and teaching God's word. And putting the bit into the mouths of, the, of those that would hear. And so he's trying to elevate the bar 
and he wants them to be mindful of that. I think for any one of us that are teaching the Word of God, I see the worship team as, as part of the teaching team because they're teaching the Word of God through song. Those that teach our children are part of our teaching team. Those that are community group leaders are part of the teaching team. And the, our youth pastor and our youth, the youth workers that come alongside of our students are part of the teaching team. And so what he's trying to do is he wants you to know there is a stricter judgment that is going to come to you. And I want you to realize that. James wanted them to realize that. The fact is, that the fact that he is putting out here is that we're accountable before God. We're accountable before God. Now we know that from the scriptures, we see different accountability passages. I was reading this passage in Jude. Not too many people are meditating on Jude. I was meditating on Jude this week. Jude 14 and 15 says this about the judgment of God. It says, see the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly acts that they have done in the ungodly way, and notice this, and all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. See, what we see in this passage is we got, we see Jesus often as our loving Jesus, the one who embraces us. But this is Jesus the judge. This is Jesus the judge that will hold accountable a world for their words. He will hold us accountable for our words. Now, I believe the believer's judgment is a little bit different. Here's one in 1 Corinthians where it's talking about a believer's judgment. He, the judge, will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's heart. And at that time, each will receive his praise from God. See, here, we, here God will give praise for those that are presenting Christ with a sincere heart. Here's the point. The point is that there is a judgment, there is an accountability that the believer will face, the unbeliever will face in terms of our words. Now, when you hear such a high admonition and, and that this judgment is coming, you automatically think, well, <laughs> not me. I don't want to be a teacher ever in the church. But then James brings it down to a practical level. He says, listen, in verse 2, he says, we're all going to stumble. So James wasn't presenting this level of this high bar where nobody is ever going to fail in their words. He's being realistic. There is going to be failure. There will be failure with this guy. There will be failure with each and every one of you with our words. But what James does do is he says, there should be a certain level of maturity because then he says, for if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now the word perfect means mature. It means the person who has, has come to a, a, a level of completion where they have walked with God. There has been a discipline in their life where they have learned to control the things that they're saying. I know I have a long way to go, but I look sometimes at what I said when I was younger, and now that I'm older, and sometimes I wonder, I was such an idiot. Do you ever look at yourself and think, I was an idiot at one point in your life? Maybe you still think you're an idiot. I don't know. 
But I look at the, the, the level of maturity that he is talking about here, and he is saying there should be, as we grow with Christ, as we understand Christ, there should be a change in how we control. There should be a level of discernment by which we operate. And this is the person that is able to guide the whole ship, the whole body as well. Now, he uses two illustrations. He uses that of a ship and a horse. Now, notice what he says in this. Verse 3. If we, James is including himself, if we put the bit into the horse's mouth so they obey us, we guide their whole body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So we see the teacher in here. The teacher is the pilot. The teacher is the person that puts the bit into the horse's mouth. Now, I don't know if you like the illustration, but he's relating the body as a horse or a ship. Now, I, do, I was on a ship last week with my wife. It was beautiful. It took us to, the Bermuda, uh, to Bermuda. No hurricanes, thankfully. We prayed for those that were in Hurricane Alley. But the ship was massive. And it it was able to carry us. But in James's day, those ships weren't like that. They weren't cruise lighters. They were more functional. They were able to carry cargo. They were able to rescue people. They were able to help others. A horse that was harnessed was able to do an incredible amount of work. But if you take the bit out and you take the, the rudder off the ship, then you have two things that are absolutely reckless. And the whole point that James is getting to is that you need godly leadership that will help put the proper bit and will steer the, ch the church in the proper direction towards Christ-likeness. We live in a world where that doesn't always happen. I'm not, I'm, I, I, please understand, you know we pray for other churches and I would be very cautious to bring any criticism against the bride of Christ. But I take it as a very high admonition for us as a church and for the churches that we pray for that we would stay the course in the word of God. Because it's very easy to start to vary from God's word and say, you know what? This is what would be popular. This is what would draw the crowds. My friends, I don't care about drawing the crowds. What I care about is that we accurately teach the word of God and we live it out. And when we do that, there will be a profound impact that we have on a community if, we just, if they see Christ in us. So what's the application? Teachers are leaders. That's the application. If you're a worship leader, if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're a community group leader, just understand you will incur a stricter judgment. Just know that. Just know that. You're leading people. That's not to discourage you. It is simply to admonish you and to help you realize you're accountable before God. Now for the individual that would think, Woo! Thank you! I am not a teacher. I am free from this, this stricter judgment. I want you to think again because I think there is a secondary application because the reality is that every single one of us teach with our life. We teach our children. 
We teach our grandchildren. We should. We teach our coworkers with our lives. We teach our neighbors. And, and some of it is an actual teaching of the Word of God where you're, you're teaching those principles. I know we're trying to with our grandchildren to, as they get older. I, I look forward to teaching the principles of, of what God is saying in creation and, and how we can interweave uh, Scripture into their life. We should all understand that we're teachers. But we also teach in a passive way in terms of those that are around us. We teach through our honesty. We teach through our consistent integrity. We teach when we demonstrate a consistency between our faith and our words and our actions. For example... If I am in the office in some, in a secular arena, and let's say I have a cross around my neck. Maybe once in a while I talk about Jesus. Maybe I have a pray for Steve Marshall bracelet. Thank you so much for praying for me. I appreciate it. But maybe I even have a Bible on my desk. But then I go off on these little gossip things about somebody else in the office. What does that say about me? Let's say that I'm a single person and I'm living with my girlfriend. What does it say about me? Let's just say that I, I use my words very effectively to get myself ahead and to put other people's down. What does that say about me as an individual? See, the world can see an incongruent life standard in us. And we are held accountable by the world to live out the word of God. Are we living out God's word? And see, here's the secret for all of us as believers. If there's an infiltration of God's word in our life, then his word will reflect on our words. But if there's no infiltration in our life, of his word, then we're going to have a greater tendency to speak things that are of the flesh. That's why uh, Dr. Litchie said last week, my prayer is that there would be a spark, that there would be a spark of a greater level of intimacy of Christ in your life. Because unless Christ impacts us on the most intimate level in our walk with God... It's not going to impact our life. If we just have Jesus as a, as a token in our life, we come to church, we bring our Bibles, and we read our Bibles on Sunday morning, and then we put this to the side and do nothing. We don't allow God's word to sink into our heart. Then I fear what will come of me in terms of my word. So we continue on in the passage, and James goes from this leadership high standard that we're to have, and then I, I think it's the everyday struggle with words, and he's going to give three illustrations here in the remainder of the passage, and then he's going to conclude with a couple questions. But we learn something with these illustrations that he gives us. Uh, what I love about this, though, is it just it shows me that God understands who we are. I think of Psalm 103 where it says, he understands we are but dust. 
But then it goes on and says, the Lord loves those who fear him. He understands we're going to struggle with our words. But he comes alongside of us and helps us. So, first illustration he gives is in verse uh, 5 and 6. And it's one of fire. And I see this as kind of the, the choice of destruction. Look what he says. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body and setting on fire the entire course of our life and set on fire by hell. Now, quick question. How many pyromaniacs do we have in this room? Please raise your hand. If you are a pyromaniac, you are the kid that was always building the fire when you were going camping with your family, if you went camping. Okay, well, Chris, I, I, you didn't even have to raise your hand. I knew you were a pyromaniac. <laughs> I was one of those pyromaniacs. I love to, if, if there's just like one ember of a coal, I'd love to see a fire. Well, this is talking about relating the tongue, obviously, with that little coal, that little spark that could create a fire. Now, as I was thinking about forest fires, because this is talking about setting such a large fire ablaze, I thought I would do a little research this week on forest fires. So I found an, ar I found an article by the United States Department of Agriculture, and they did verify this. And I quote, Wildfires threaten public safety, impair forest and eco-health, and degrade air quality. And then the article goes on and says, it will kill humans and kill animals. So they verify an out-of-control fire will do that. We all know that. But this is what I found interesting. Then it goes on and talks about a controlled burn. They use this controlled burn to help prevent fires. In a controlled burn will help, this is what they say in the article, will help the Forest Service achieve improved forest, forest and rangeland health and will help reduce the threats of large fire events. Controlled burns allow the Forest Service to control the effects of fire, its location, and intensity. Now, Chris, just know it has to be professionals that set these fires, okay? Not you. See, the distinction here is in the word control. It's in the word control. And James is obviously highlighting the danger of the out-of-control tongue. And he's given the origin of an out-of-control tongue. He says the tongue is a fire. It is a world of unrighteousness. That's that flesh we're talking about. A tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of our life, and set on fire by hell. There could be no more descriptive illustration that James gives here. So let me ask you, have you ever had one of those arguments that just got out of control? How did that argument end for you? Did you find yourself in a strained relationship? Did you find yourself uh, saying things that hurt you 
or the other person. See, when our mouth is out of control, our credibility goes with it. Church, what we need to do is work on controlled burns. Controlled burns is put this way. We are to control our tongue, plain and simple. In our toddler parenting class that we finished up just a couple weeks ago, my wife and I were teaching through this and we're going through Gary and Anne Mariezzo's book and they bring out this principle that when we raise our kids, our toddlers, that we should try to focus on virtue versus vice. And so in doing this, I'm, I'm thinking through this in my life and I'm like, you know what? I do, I focus on the vice a lot of times. And they give the illustration of Sammy, and Sammy, uh, you know, instead of the parents saying, Sammy, you are being so selfish right now, they're supposed to say, Samuel, let's work on putting others first. One is vice, one is virtue. But then I look at my own life and I can see how often I can easily say, man, you are so stinking rude. Or you are so proud and arrogant. What's your problem, man? Are you always this mean? And we tend to focus on these vice type of things. And the whole point is that we have to work on our words and how we approach people. We need to measure our words to see if we are producing virtue or vice. Now that's the first illustration he gives is the fire. So fire, controlled burn, let's work on that. Here's the second illustration he gives. He gives of creatures. And he says this. For every kind of beast and birds, reptiles and sea creatures can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can, be tame, can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now I see James, this illustration going to the issue of the nature of the individual. He's basically saying, hey, in terms of the wild kingdom, we've been able to tame the wild beasts, the beastly nature. If that weren't true, we wouldn't go to SeaWorld. We love going to SeaWorld. We love to see the dolphins jump on command. We love to see the walruses do their hand thing and give ki blow kisses to everyone. We love to see that. <laughs> yeah, that, you can try your own walrus impression later. We love to see that. But James is saying, yeah, that's true in the, the beast nature. But in the human nature, no one, no person can tame the tongue. Nobody in their own being, nobody in their own power can tame the tongue. And as a result, that tongue is full of deadly poison. It's full of poison, of hate, of gossip, of slander, of malice, of rage, of filthy language. My friends, the only way that our nature, our tongue could ever come under control is because of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Paul was saying in Romans 7? He, he gives this whole thing of I, I struggle with this and I want to do this and the very thing I want to do, I don't do and the things that I should do, I don't. And, and at the very end of that whole struggle, he comes to one conclusion and he says this, what a wretched man am I? Sometimes when I think about the words that come out of my mouth, I think, what a wretched man am I. 
when I think I should have used better control. What a wretched man am I. I really didn't mean you always burn the roast. Or you never clean the house. I didn't mean that. Oh, what a wretched man am I. And I might even have a wife that's saying, Oh, what a wretched man you are. <laughs> but Paul says, Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. My friends, that is our victory. That is the only way that we can use this thing for something good. The world is always going to promote itself. It's always going to go the way of Matthew 12 where the, the Gentiles roll over them and, and they, they step and it's a hierarchy thing. That's the way the world is. But when we enter into this world and we use this tongue for something other than promoting ourselves, what a witness that is. But it requires crucifixion. It really requires crucifixion. And so this would be the person that says, I'm interested in Christianity. I've been coming to church. I've been listening. Are you crucified? You say, Steve, what are you talking about? Crucified? I don't want to be crucified. That's the requirement. I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who lives. But it's Christ who lives within me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Crucified. That's what we need. That the resurrected life of Christ should show through us. And here's the third illustration. I love it. It's worship. He says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, 9 and 10, and with it we curse people who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessings and cursings. My brothers, these things ought not to be, here, not, ought not to be so. Now the positive here is those that would bless the Lord and Father with in a spirit of worship. What we had earlier in just raising our hands and worshiping God and having communion is a beautiful thing. And I don't think there's a more beautiful thing than the body of Christ coming together to worship corporately. But the caution here is those that would use that same mouth to praise God than to curse others. I think this is why uh, Paul was warning Timothy in 1 Timothy. He says, listen, I want men to lift up holy hands. But then notice what he says, without arguing and dispute. Why does he say that? He knows our propensity to use our mouth to promote ourselves. And he says, if, there's gonna be con if you're going to lift your hands up, I want there to be consistency. I want you to lift up holy hands and I want to know that there is a control on this mouth of ours. You see, this brings up this inconsistency that we can have in the church. And we've all experienced it. 
you have this great worship time and it's, not, it's, 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 it's only like 45 minutes later or an hour later, an hour and a half later that we're arguing in the car that we're saying things that hurt people or we don't like how the services, services at the restaurant and so we criticize. It's very easy for us to do that. The reason these things ought not to be is that they don't reflect the heart of Jesus. And so it brings up the question, are we worshiping God with our words and action? I think one of the things that we think we do, it's true, is that we come on Sunday morning and we worship God. But what we forget is that during the week, everything I do is an expression of worship to God. When I read Romans chapter 12 and he says, I want to present myself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God as a spiritual act of worship, he's talking about life. And so when you come alongside of a coworker and say, man, I want to help, I want to be an encouragement to you. I want to help you. What's, what, what's difficult in the project you're working on? Or that Sunday school teacher that you come alongside of and say, man, my kids are trying to memorize these verses and I am just so happy that you're there to do that. Or that person that you come alongside of and say, man, I sense that you're going through a lot. I just want to pray for you right now. I've done that for people that don't know Christ. And I haven't had really too many people turn me down for prayer. Our life is all about worship. How we live it out. And so what James does in conclusion is he comes to two revealing questions. And he says this. Does a spring pour forth from the uh, same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brother, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can salt pond, can a salt pond yield fresh water? See, in these questions, the answer is obvious. Can fresh, sweet water come from the same opening as bitter water? No. That's inconsistent. Can, can the grapevine produce a fig? No. That's inconsistent. And so what he is showing is that there can be inconsistencies in our life, and that's what he is trying to correct because that's what the Word of God does. It corrects us. It starts with our tongue. Showing that we have yielded our life to Christ. Are we crucified? And if we are crucified with Christ, then our tongue then will indicate the leader that we are following. And then our tongue will determine the kind of leader that we will be. James has given us an admonition to think about our leadership. He's giving us an admonition to think about our tongue. I want to conclude with a passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 6, I'm always struck with this. This is what he says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphims, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. They covered their feet and they and, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. 
The earth is full of his glory. At the sound of the, their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And notice the response of Isaiah. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. First thing he says, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. What I'm struck with is when we understand that we live life within the presence of God, it changes everything. And we realize how holy God is and how depraved and fallen we are. And all we can say is, woe is me. But notice what happens. Then the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with his tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Because of the blood of Christ, that coal can come to our mouth and to our heart. And during this time of reflection, we're going to be singing a song, Take My Life and Let It Be. And my prayer is that for each of us, that we would ask God to consecrate our words, set it apart. Consecrate our intellect, our will, our hearts, ourselves, all for the glory of God. And that God would take that coal, if we need that coal, from his altar to touch our mouth. And so I want to use this as our altar. If you want to come and kneel and pray and just present yourself to God, that's awesome. If you just want to stand and lift up your hands and surrender to God, that's awesome. If you want to kneel where you're at, it doesn't matter. The importance is that we ask God to do a cleansing within us for the things that we struggle with in terms of our words. Lord Jesus, I pray, Father, that you would take first and foremost your word and touch this guy. Lord, as I, uh, as I find myself every single week when I present your word, I find myself on my face before you because I know I don't deserve you. I know I don't deserve to represent you. But Lord, I... I ask that you do for me, that you do for this body, what I, I know I ask on a regular basis. Cleanse me. Cleanse my palate. Cleanse my mouth. Help me to have a heart that's, uh, that bubbles up with things of expressions of praise and things that will build people up. Help me to think in that way. And I pray, Father, in this holy moment, that you would take our lives and whatever is on our minds, whatever is on our hearts, whatever real life situation we're facing, would you take it? Would you consecrate it to you?